pray. Father, the text before us this morning is the one that we have been pressing toward since the beginning of this study in the Gospel of John, more than a hundred messages ago. And here we are. And this, your preacher, feels completely inadequate to communicate the depth of the riches of the glory of God in the cross of Christ. So would you help me, Lord, now to communicate these things faithfully and in a way that's carefully and perhaps easily understood, and yet these things are mysterious, some of them, beyond our ability to understand fully because they are of you. And so, Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and to change us and to expose what is in us that needs to be changed and then transform us and save some, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John chapter 19 again this morning. And it is a great delight and a fearful thing at the same time to come to this passage where we are actually viewing, as it were, through the words of this text, the glory of Christ in the suffering of his cross. When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ here at Calvary Bible Church, we often speak of it in in the light of the profound and revelatory text which came from the pen of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where we read, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, God made his righteous, sinless, innocent, holy, majestic, praiseworthy, beloved son, the object of his eternal wrath against sin. He treated Jesus as if he had become the personification of sin rather than God in flesh. He treated him as if he had lived my wicked, vile, self-centered, lustful, fleshly, God-belittling, degenerate, idolatrous life. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, God crushed his son. Or as Paul would say, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. As Moses said, God permitted the serpent to bruise his heel. As the gospel authors said, God permitted Judas to betray him. He permitted the Sanhedrin to falsely condemn him. He permitted Pilate to sentence him. He permitted the soldiers to mock and torture him. He permitted his apostles to abandon and deny him. And the sum of it all is that God 
was treating his son as if he had become the very substance of sin, unleashing the full fury of his wrath upon the, the one he loved most. And why? Why? And Paul explains it. It was so that we might, we who are sinners, might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. And so this morning we turn to John chapter 19 where we read about Jesus' final hours. And this is the end to which all of history, all of redemptive history has been pressing and striving. And where Jesus had been pursuing since the beginning of his ministry, all of redemptive history has been speeding toward this one redemptive moment, the day Christ bore the curse of God against sin on our behalf in his body on the cross. And today we're privileged to read and meditate upon John's inspired record of Jesus' crucifixion by which we have been saved. But before we read this text, let me first encourage you, exhort you, plead with you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak not to your neighbor, not to that sinful husband who drives you crazy, not to brother whoever who didn't show up today and you really wish he was here to see it and hear it, but pray that God would open your heart and reveal what he wants you to see about Christ and about you. Open yourself fully to his sanctifying intrusion into your life so that he might have full sway over the impulses of your heart. And do it for his great glory. And do it for your own God-besotted joy. Let's stand together and read this passage. John 19, verses 16 through 30. If there is ever a text of scripture worthy of our standing for, it is this. We left off at 16 last time, and here's how it reads. So he, that is Pilate, delivered him, that is Jesus, over to them, that would be the soldiers, to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, 
But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which say, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the Lord Bless the reading of his word in your heart and in mine. You can be seated. In this passage, I see Jesus suffering in five different ways, four different ways, really, and then the fifth in his culmination. And they are these, just to give you some structure. First, he suffered excruciating execution. Second, he suffered vengeful humiliation. Third, He suffered demoralizing deprivation. Fourth, he suffered crushing separation. And finally, he suffered the final culmination. Let's look at the first. Jesus suffered excruciating execution. You know, when I'm writing this sermon, I like to say things that are that are encouraging, might lift your spirits a little. You know, you've probably had a hard week. The uplifting parts are coming, but it's not going to start that way. Jesus suffered excruciating execution. The previous section, as I said, ends with the words, verse 16, so they delivered him over to be crucified. After all the drama that went into Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, the accusations, the interrogations, being shuttled, from this side of the temple to the other side of the temple, from Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate. Again, the scourging post. The scene finally ends with Pilate reluctantly sentencing Jesus to death. And so, John writes, they delivered him over to be crucified. From the very beginning of our discussion today, however, I, I need to remind you that Jesus didn't go to the cross simply because Pilate sent him there. The invisible hand of providence is moving behind the scenes, working out every detail according to God's sovereign purposes, according to his eternal plan. The word for delivered him over is actually a term that's repeatedly used with reference to Jesus' crucifixion. And I was tempted to kind of trace this out for us this morning, but We don't have time, and I don't want to get sidetracked. But I would point out to you that in Romans 8.32, I think my favorite passage in the New Testament, which says this, 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Which being interpreted means God is not holding out on you. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How do I know? How do I know that's true? Sometimes it feels like he's holding out on me. How do I know that's true? Answer, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He delivered him over. He delivered him to Pilate, to Herod, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the soldiers, to the cross. That's how we know. But the verbiage Paul uses explains what's happening. Who delivered him over? God did not spare his own son, but God delivered him. Now, you have to, in order to get your head around that, you have to think Old Testament. You have to go back to Genesis. Because in Genesis, we find Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham, right? Look at the stars, Abraham. So shall your offspring be innumerable. And they would come through the promised son, whose name was Isaac. And one day, after he was 100 years old, God gave him Isaac, whose name means laughter. And Sarah did laugh. And we laugh at her laughing and denying that she laughed. But this became Abraham's precious son. And it is a picture for us of God the Father and God the Son. And God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom I have given you, and make him a sacrifice. And so, in faith, believing that God would fulfill his promise even if he must raise Isaac from the dead, took Isaac to Mount Moriah, which, geographically speaking, ended up being the very place upon which the temple was built. That's a whole other series of lectures. He takes him up to that little hill. He builds an altar out of stone, and he lays his son on it, ties him, and he takes the knife And in faith, he's about to plunge it into his son's heart. And you're reading that the first time, having never read anything else in the Bible, and you're thinking, no, 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 no. This is wrong. This is wrong. Don't kill your son. Don't kill your son. Don't stab him in the heart. And that's how you're supposed to feel when you read that story. And at the last second, the angel of the Lord appears and says, Abraham, stop. Because God has provided a substitute. And in the thicket, you remember, there was a goat. 
And we get out of the story God's name, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. But, Romans 8.32, back to that. God did not do what he had Abraham do. He had Abraham spare his son. But at the cross, he, God, did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And so the knife went through his heart, the sword through his side, the nails in his feet and hands. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. If there is ever any question in your mind about whether or not God the Father loves sinners, we need only to look at John 19 for confirmation. It was the Father who delivered him over to crucifixion, verse 16. So they took Jesus and went out. The other three gospel accounts say that they led Jesus away, which suggests that when Jesus went with them, he went willingly, without any resistance, just as Isaiah had prophesied 400 years earlier that Messiah, when it came to his death, was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He went willingly. And where did they take him? Well, John says they took him to a well-known place of execution. Locally, it was named Golgotha, which means cranium. You said, you, know, you, you think cranium, you mean head? Yes. Skull? Yes. It was, it was a place that perhaps even looked like a skull. There's a place there today that looks like a skull, and it's hotly debated as to whether that's the actual site. It seems obvious, but scholars will argue about anything. That's what <laughs> they do. <laughs> place of the skull in Latin... This is, I alluded to this last week prematurely as I was studying ahead and inserted this into the wrong sermon. Um, the Latin for Golgotha is Calvaria, from which we get Calvary, which is the name of our church. Two things that are most precious to us, Calvary and the Bible. So we are a Calvary Bible church. It may have received such a title simply because it was a place of execution. We don't know for certain where the crucifixion actually happened, but we do know that the crucifixion itself was a detestable and horrifying form of execution. And John doesn't say much about the agony of the cross. That's not his point. He merely remarks in verse 18, there they crucified him. That's it. That's all we get. He mentions it again, but he says it almost in exactly the same words. There they crucified him. John assumes his readers already understand implicitly all that was involved in the horrific display of human depravity through execution by crucifixion. I mean, the people in his day, they'd seen it a thousand times. But it's not as intuitive for us, so let me just take a moment, and we're not going to get too far into this. You've no doubt heard these things. Of crucifixion, Tom Constable writes, it was a deliberately long and excruciating form of death that humiliated the sufferer as well as torturing him. Its purpose was to discourage others from rebelling against Rome. Kostenberger adds, 
In ancient times, crucifixion was synonymous with horror and shame, a death inflicted upon slaves, bandits, and revolutionaries. D.A. Carson drills down deeper when he says crucifixion was, a, was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the express sanction of the emperor. Stripped naked and beaten to pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasms racked the entire body, but since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. Tenney concludes that crucifixion was probably the most diabolical form of death ever invented. Nevertheless, explaining the agony of the cross was not John's object. And that's true of all four gospel authors. They don't spend any time describing what they see in terms of how he was crucified and the agony of it. The point of it was simply that Jesus died for sinners. That he was nailed to the cross and was killed in a bloody, brutal death for us. They wanted us to see that God made Jesus a curse for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What John does tell us about the crucifixion is in verse 17 when he says, Jesus went out bearing his cross. On the way to the place of execution, the condemned prisoner was usually forced to carry his own, own cross, or at least a portion of it, the cross beam. It's just like Isaac, to go back to Abraham. As Isaac carried his own wood to his own sacrifice, so Jesus carried his own cross to his own crucifixion. Jesus suffered excruciating execution. Secondly, Jesus suffered vengeful humiliation, verses 18 through 22. The narrative leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, we, we know that Pilate revisited uh, the, the Jews again and again, and he resisted every time. He resisted their demand to sentence Jesus to death. Over and over, Pilate kept saying, I find no fault in him. What is your charge against him? He has done nothing wrong. I have sent him to Herod, and he agrees there is nothing worthy of death in this man. He repeats that seven times in the Gospels. I find no guilt in him. But in the end, he found himself blackmailed into condemning the most righteous, innocent man who ever walked the face of the earth. The sentence was unjust and undeserved, but if he was going to condemn Jesus, he had to make it official. And so he set up his judgment seat. The word there in Greek is bima. It's a reflection of, or a shadow, a foreshadowing of when the tables will be turned and it will be Jesus on the judgment. And I understand bima. But it's ironic here. And Jesus even told the, the Sanhedrin, didn't he? Yes, I am the Son of God. I know you're going to kill me, but I soon will be sitting 
at the very throne of power on high. Which being interpreted means, you are judging me now. I will judge you later. And so Pilate kept saying, I find no guilt in him. He is innocent. Normally, the judge of a person sentenced to crucifixion would order that a, a placard called the titulus, it, it would have an inscription identifying the crime that the person committed, and it would accompany him to the place of the execution. Sometimes it said that they would carry it on a placard on a sign, or they would hang it around his neck. In this case, they nailed it to the cross. It would inform onlookers of what the criminal did, what he, who he was, and why he was suffering this terrible fate. And the soldiers would affix the criminal's cross in such a way that the sign on the top would be evident to all. And this was certainly the case with Jesus. All four gospel accounts report about this plaque, this inscription. So whatever it means, it must be important. And we should be careful not to miss the irony here, by the way, that while Pilate had proven to be weak when it came to the all-important question of Jesus' worthiness to be executed, on the seemingly insignificant matter of how to formulate the wording of the placard, he was resolved and absolutely inflexible. What I have written, I have written. It's important to note, however, that Pilate broke tradition and didn't put on the placard any charge against Jesus. Rather, he simply wrote a title. And the title was simply this, Jesus of Nazareth, there's his name, King of the Jews. And he had it written in three languages. It was written in Latin, the official language of the government. It was written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Jews in Palestine, and it was written in Greek, which was the language of world commerce and culture. And Pilate was determined to make sure everyone who passed by, no matter what their nationality, would be able to read what he had written, and they did. Matthew 27 tells us that as people passed by, they saw him, they saw the, the placard, and they hurled insults at him. No doubt Pilate's intention was to take a little bit of revenge on the Jewish leaders for forcing him to do what he knew was unjust. Giving Jesus the public title, King of the Jews, was his way of insulting them. It declared to the whole world that the highest-ranking Jew in all Israel, Israel's hero, and only sovereign was nothing more than a criminal from Nazareth whose throne is a crucifixion stake, whose crown is, a bloody, is, is, is made of bloody thorns, his robe is his scourged, disfigured, and naked body, and whose court consists of nothing more than two other guilty criminals who were hung on his left and on his right on crosses just like him. No wonder the Jewish leaders were irate. No wonder they burst into his office angry. And they came to Pilate demanding that he change the inscription. Verse 21, he says, they say, Do not write Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, but that he said that he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate was unmoved. What I have written, I have written. 
The inscription, however, was not only insulting to the nation, it ranked among the most vile acts of personal humiliation ever inflicted on a single human being. Jesus suffered horrific public humiliation. But it must also be noted that what Pilate intended for evil, God intended for good. In this scene, Pilate is portrayed, unbeknownst to him, as an unwilling prophet. You see Jonah in Pilate. Jonah, who was told to go to Nineveh and preach, and he said, I'm not going to Nineveh, and I'm not preaching. And the Lord persuaded him. It wasn't that explicit for Pilate, but the God who is sovereign over all, whose will is worked out in every detail of human history, before whom not a single event, not even the dying of a sparrow, goes unnoticed or unplanned. Not even a hair of your head falls out without the Lord being behind it and knowing it. And so he uses Pilate as the unwitting prophet proclaiming to the nations the pure word of God. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews and king of the world. And two days from now, he will prove his royal authority, even over death when he rises again from the tomb. It was Jesus himself who said that they would be, he would be crucified. But he said, I lay my own life down. No one takes it from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back again. This is the king. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus must suffer excruciating execution and public humiliation. But third, Jesus suffered demoralizing deprivation. When the Romans crucified a criminal, there was usually a team of four soldiers responsible for the whole undertaking, and it was common for them to take whatever belongings, really whatever clothing, that the criminal had and divided among themselves if there was anything worth anything. As mentioned before, criminals who faced crucifixion were first completely stripped of all of their clothing and left naked on the cross. Here is total and complete deprivation. Here is the depriving of a human being even the smallest modicum of personal dignity. They took his clothes all of them. And not only that, but they added to the indignity by dividing his belongings right there before him at the foot of the cross. To the one hanging on the cross, the message is clear. There is no hope for your survival. You will not live through this. All is lost. Even your clothing has already been divided up and no longer belongs to you. You will never see it again hopelessness. You will soon die in ignominy, in complete deprivation, and there's nothing that you can do. You will not survive. 
For Jesus, this means the soldiers bartered for his robe, his sandals, his belt, his head covering, the four pieces. But there was also a fifth garment, the tunic. Since the garment was seamless, John says, and there was only four soldiers, they decided to cast lots to see who would get that. And they did it all in the full view of Jesus and his mother and the other Marys. There were three Marys there, it appears, and Salome. They did it all right there before him in full view of Jesus and those who loved him and, and John. And J.C. Ryle puts it like this. The Lord was treated just like all common criminals, stripped naked, and his clothes sold under his eyes as one dead already and cast aside by men. And yet, even in this, John shows that God sovereignly ruled over all. John writes, verse 24, this was to fulfill the scriptures, which says... They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is the direct fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. Just as everything else that happened in Jesus' life was ordained by the Father before he was even born. You see, beloved, from the beginning of time, God had every detail of your redemption perfectly planned. The Savior of the world was to die in naked deprivation so that we could be clothed in perfect righteousness and glory. And so Jesus suffered excruciating execution and public humiliation and absolute deprivation. Number four, Jesus suffered crushing separation. Verses 25 through 27. The gospel authors don't reveal a great deal about Mary, Jesus' mother, But it seems clear in this passage that he loved his mother deeply and he had been caring for her for some time. And she was probably a widow by now, no doubt in her mid-50s, without any means of support except by her oldest son. Jesus addresses his mother by saying, Dear woman, your, your version probably says, Woman? But it doesn't come across in that tone from Jesus. Dear woman, this was an affectionate and respectful way of speaking to her. It's truly amazing, is it not, that even on the cross of his execution, hanging there in excruciating pain, Jesus is concerned not for himself, but for those around him, for his mother. This was the end. Soon he would be dead and someone else was going to have to take care of her. For both mother and son, this was going to be a painful and profound separation. Those of you who, are, who have lost parents, you know that feeling. And this was exponentially worse. His mother thought that Jesus was going to bring in the kingdom if she thought like the other disciples. And here he was, dying. But Jesus wouldn't. He wasn't going to allow Mary to just be left. He was going to make sure that his mother was cared for. Constable points out that the language used here was legal and quite similar to the terms used commonly in ancient adoption proceedings. Her husband Joseph had no doubt long since died. Her other sons were still unbelievers. 
John makes that evident a couple of times in his gospel. And so Jesus puts her in the care of the disciple whom he loved. And the one who told us about the disciple whom Jesus loved was the very disciple who was writing this book and never once mentions himself by name. All John says is from that very hour, verse 27, Mary lived in his home. This disciple whom Jesus loved. To be sure, this was a heartbreaking separation. But being separated from an earthly mother is nothing compared to the coming separation between him and his heavenly father. And John doesn't record this for us here. But I want to talk about it just a little bit. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46, we read, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here was the worst part of the crucifixion for Jesus. The scourging of his back, the crown of thorns, none of the torture, none of the abuse caused him to cry out in anguish of soul. He endured his betrayal. He endured the bitter mocking. He endured the physical beating without a word. He was like a lamb before his shears. He said nothing. Not even the nails in his feet and hands could cause him to plead for anything except that that his executioners might be forgiven. But at this moment on the cross, something dreadfully appalling happens in the darkness. And it causes Jesus to cry out in tormented agony. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? This is anguish of soul. This was the only occasion in all eternity when the Father ever broke fellowship with the Son. He not only broke fellowship with him, listen, he turned his back on his Son as if to say, my Son, you are nothing but a worthless guilty criminal that these men claim to you claim you to be i condemn you be damned this is the father cursing his son this is the father laying the curse of sin upon his son The point of the crucifixion is that Jesus was cursed by God on our behalf. You may or may not remember all the way back in Leviticus 24, 14, where a man got angry with his neighbor and he blasphemed. And they grabbed him and they took him to Moses. And Moses said, Lord, what do I do with him? And the Lord said, take him outside the camp, the place of execution, and stone him to death, which they did. He was under God's curse. And so the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the camp. Jesus was taken outside the camp where the carcasses of animals and where condemned criminals are executed and burned. It's where they were stoned. It's where the full weight of civil judgment came upon them. But in this case, it wasn't the civil courts that were laying the judgment. It was his father. Paul makes this explicit in Galatians 3 when he writes this. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. You know what that means? If you have ever broken any one of God's law, you are under God's curse. You're under God's curse. You deserve for God to say, get on that cross. Everything that the authorities are saying about you is true and 10,000 times worse. You are cursed to me. Be damned. And in verse 13, Paul says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's quoting out of the book of Deuteronomy. Anyone who is hung to a tree, anyone who is nailed in judgment to a tree is cursed in the eyes of God. And yet, God is the one putting him there. This is what Paul meant when he said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It means that in order to save sinners, God had to treat his son as the worst of sinners. In order to save me, he had to treat Jesus as if he were me. He had to say to his son, depart from me, Cursed one, leave me. Enter into eternal darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, my friend, do you see now what it cost God to pay for your sin? Can you comprehend something of the wickedness of the sin that you claim is so small? And insignificant. Do you feel something of how deep the son's love for sinners must have been and must be that he should become the object of God's damning curse on your behalf? Do you see the love of the father for you that he was unwilling to spare his son? As Isaiah said, he crushed his son. 
caused him to perish for your crimes so that you could come to repentance. This is amazing, isn't it? And this is incomprehensible. And I think even, even we as evangelicals, you know what evangelical means, right? Evangelical comes from the word euangelion, which is the, the Greek word for gospel. We are gospel people. And we are those who claim to understand the gospel. But do we understand all of the gospel? Do we understand why there had to be a gospel? We were under God's curse. And yet he poured out the judgment of that curse upon his son. The nails, the thorns, the mocking, the scourging, Jesus didn't open his mouth. The curse of God? My father, why are you forsaking me? Jesus suffered excruciating execution, public humiliation, absolute deprivation, heartbreaking separation. Nevertheless, and finally, he suffered to the final culmination. He didn't quit. You remember people who were mocking him, some of the Jews were saying, if you really are the son of God, get yourself off that cross, let's see it. And he could have. He could have. But he didn't. And once again, John points out that things are going exactly as planned, even to the details, so minute as Jesus declaring his thirst. And John sees that statement, I thirst, as another fulfillment of prophetic scripture. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen presents the suffering Messiah as thirsty, and Psalm 69, 21 speaks of him being given sour wine to drink, and this is exactly what happened. It's exactly what Jesus did, not because he was attempting to artificially fulfill the scriptures that had been written about the Messiah, but simply because the scriptures foretold what would happen. In all of this, we see the magnificent sovereignty of God over Jesus' suffering at the hands of men. For redemption to take place, Jesus had to bear the horrible curse of sin on our behalf. Here is also the ultimate display of the love of God for sinners, that Christ would be willing to suffer burning thirst so that his people might drink freely of the soul-satisfying living water. It's salvation. It's the invitation to come and drink of the rivers of life, which through the Holy Spirit come welling out from within. And then when all of the cross work was completed, he cried out, no doubt in Aramaic, it is finished. In Aramaic, it is tetelestai, which simply means paid in full. It was an accounting term. You go to the market, you need to buy eggs, some lentil, some bagels, but you don't have any of your money with you, and you say to him, put it on my account, and I will come back and pay it. 
And when you come back to pay it, I'm here to pay for my lentils and bagels and whatever else. And you hand over the money, or maybe you pay with chickens. And the merchant takes out his pen, and he writes on your debt to Telestai. Paid in full. It's paid. And he gave up his spirit. And nobody took it from him. He had the authority to lay down his life, and he had the authority to take it back again. Oh, beloved, do you understand the significance of the cross? As a sinner, you stand under the curse of Almighty God. But Jesus, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, as good as dead in our transgressions and sins, offered himself as the sufficient object of God's curse upon sin on our behalf. Paul explains in Colossians 2.14 that God made us alive together, having forgiven all of our trans- trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to his cross. So he takes our debt. He takes our debt, the certificate of our debt, and he nails it on the cross of Christ. And Jesus says, it's paid. It's paid, all of it, all of your sin, all of your sin. And some of you live every day of your life thinking, you don't know how bad my sin is. And I would say, if you're struggling with that, then you don't know how great your Savior is. There is no sin so deep that Christ is not deeper still. There is no sin more horrific than the curse and judgment that God poured out on his son. It is finished. It is done. It is forgiven. If you've trusted him. And if you haven't put all of your hope in him, I plead with you this morning. This is your only hope. What Jesus did here in John 19 is your only hope. One day you will stand before God on your own merit. And he will say, depart from me. And you will say, but I went to church. I gave money. I served. I sacrificed. I ministered. And some will say, did we not do miracles? Religious people. And yet Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You didn't know him. He didn't know you. Because you were trusting in yourself. Listen, beloved, I'm calling you today to not only repent of your sin, I'm calling you, most of all, to repent of your righteousness. You have none. It's Christ for righteousness. And it is Christ who paid your debt. This passage that I began with is so precious to me. This may be my favorite one in the New Testament. 
but it too is in Romans. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to take the curse for me so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, beloved, all of redemptive history has been pressing toward this one moment in time, the day Christ bore our sins, our curse, in his body on the cross. Do you believe that? Have you hung all of your eternal hope on that? Then rejoice. You are forgiven. Live for Christ. Sacrifice for Christ. Purify yourself, Paul would say, daily because of what he did for you in Christ. And if you have not, if you are not forgiven, then I would plead with you. Today, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe, and he will not cast you out. The payment of Jesus Christ was sufficient. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. How amazing. And it is why we live. It is why we are alive today. It is why we will live forever with you. It is why we will have the life of God living in us forever. Because Jesus became a curse for us. And you laid all of your judgment upon him. He drank the bitter cup of the raging wrath of God so that we could drink of the the cup of the blessing of God. And so we praise you. We worship you. We glory in Christ Jesus. We magnify your name. And we ask you to have your way with us. Lord, we love you. Help us now to sing of these great truths in a manner that pleases you. Let's stand together.